go live now. Hey, what's up, y'all? Facebook and YouTube. This is Justin Wilson, and I'm here with Christopher Fisher. Um, he's an open theist. He's, I think he's one of the most articulate open theists that, I've, that I know personally. And I always wanted to just, um, I guess, drill him verbally on this subject because uh, he seems to know this subject inside and out. And uh, yeah, I just like to pretty much pick his brain, see how far his logic goes in this area. Uh, and, and I'm going to let him explain what open theism is, um, at least from his perspective, so that I won't, you know, create a straw man. But, you know, I just love for those who are here because you think I'm talking about politics and so on. This is not one of those political, um, I guess, posts. Uh, you know, I just love theology because that's what I'm Adventist. And also, um, I'm Hermes. Like I, I love hermeneutics, so I like to see how a person exegete the Bible. So, anyway, Christopher, tell me what open theism is. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you asked because uh, I think it's really important to define our terms. I started my Isaiah uh, 40 through 48 debate defining open theism because that's the crux of, of, of what this issue is about. Uh, so classical. Classical theism has this conception of God where God is pure simplicity, pure actuality. He's, he's timeless. Uh, he, he doesn't have any change. There's immutability, impeccability. And along with these attributes, they add one called omniscience. The classical definition of omniscience, it might surprise your listeners today, uh, what they actually believe is the classical definition of omniscience. I got all the quotes for this. Uh, but basically, this is an omniscience, a type of knowledge that God has that's ungenerated. That means uh, it doesn't come from anything. It doesn't spawn even within sight God himself. Uh, it's non-discursive. God's thoughts don't spring from a series of ideas. He doesn't piece one plus one equals two. It's non-discursive. There, there's no steps in God's thinking in classical omniscience. It's eternal. It's part of an eternal, simple act that spawns everything into existence. It's unfalsifiable. God doesn't know something that doesn't actualize or materialize, and it's exhaustive, past, present, and future. So open theists merely believe the proposition that God can gain knowledge. This includes discursive thoughts. God can think about something and come to a conclusion. God can decide to do something. God can make decisions. Uh, God can decide to come up with something he never thought to do before. He can do that. God can think. Uh, it, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. That is open theism in a nutshell. God can think. Okay. It's, it, you, you, you presented it in a different way that I never heard it, um, at least coming from this angle. Um, so usually I hear that it means that God doesn't know the future, correct? Well, I know the future. Uh, so uh, I, I always use predict it. And so guess what uh, a reoccurring predicted category is? Will Trump be president in January? I've won two years in a, war, in a row betting my money about the future. I knew the future. Trump was still going to be president in those Januaries. And so if I can know the future, why would I deny that God can know the future? That, that would be kind of silly. What classical theism wants, though, they want a knowledge of the future like that's unfalsifiable. That was one of the adjectives that I did use, that uh, you, 
the knowledge has to come about. It can't be falsified. God can't change what he knows will happen in the future in classical omniscience. In open theism, God gains knowledge. God can decide to do things. God can falsify what he knows is going to happen. This is the common definition of knowledge that you and I use. It's only when we come to theology that we hear these weird definitions of what knowledge is, what omniscience is, uh, God's properties. That, that theology is the only place that they want to apply these weird definitions. Okay. So in other words, you're saying that God, he know he could predict the future. In that sense, he knows what's likely to happen, but he doesn't exhaustively know it. Right. Correct? So I know that if I come home from work on Monday, my daughters are going to run up to me. I got three daughters. Uh, they'll say, um, let's go swimming. They always do. So I can predict their actions, what they are going to say they want to do. And I can predict my boys are not going to want to uh, ask me to go swimming. But I predict that if I, I decide to take my girls swimming, all my boys will opt to go as well. And we'll all go swimming. And we're going to get there. And my littlest baby, my two-year-old, she's going to run around the top of the pool. She's not going to want to get in the water. She'll dip her feet in. And uh, she'll be all bashful about it. And my other kids are just going to hop right in. So I, I know I know this is the future. I, ca I can predict the future. I know the future. It's, it's a category of knowledge. You wouldn't say to me, oh, you don't know that. Well, I do know that. And uh, I, how do I know that I know that? We look at my prediction record, 100% accuracy on my podcast of me predicting the future. How can we say that's not knowledge? Okay, so, you, so isn't that just uncertain knowledge though like right. you, you you don't have certain you have you don't have certainty like it's not set in stone but you have i guess good probable cause to believe what you what you believe you know right so let's say i say yeah we could go swimming to my kids and then they start whining and misbehaving i could say you know that thing i said that i i would do for you well something happened and now i will not do what i said i was going to do i will not do what i thought i was going to do and actually god actually uses this language in jeremiah 18. if you're reading the new king james it's a better translation than esv because they use the different translations for the different words god says if a nation repents and let's say it's a good nation i'm going to bless it if the nation becomes wicked, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. And if it's wicked and I was going to destroy it, but they turn away and become good, I will not do what I thought I was going to do. So God says that he can respond to changing circumstances. That's something I could do. That's something God could do. Oh, so in other words, he, he, corrects it. he can correct himself, correct? Well, why is that a correcting yourself? Uh, it's it's a responding to changing circumstances. Only a dead, unliving God couldn't respond to circumstances and take the correct action. So we, we would actually consider it probably unjust if uh, God destroyed all of Nineveh after Nineveh had repented. If God was true to his word, true to his word, 40 days and you'll be overthrown, I will destroy you all, kill you all. That's what uh, Jonah wanted. We, we might look at that situation and say, oh, they repented. They repented in earnest. And then God went ahead and killed them anyways. So it's not that God was originally wrong ever, but God is a God of justice. God responds to circumstances. And sometimes justice demands that God not do what he said he was going to do and not do what he thought he was going to do because circumstances have changed. Okay, so when you say... He 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 does things that he thought he was going to do, or he does he doesn't do something he thought he was going to do. Is right. that not correction? Well, why would it be a correction? 
because the circumstances no. changed. The only well, reason exactly. that you're going to do something is because the circumstances uh, demand that action. The only reason I'm bringing my kids swimming is because, you know, they're behaving well. But if that condition, if that switches, I'm not going to bring them sw swimming anymore. That doesn't mean my original assessment was incorrect. That doesn't mean I was wrong for wanting to do that. The circumstances changed. Well, yeah, the circumstances changed. But if you thought something that was, if you thought something was going to happen and it didn't happen, that means you thought wrong, right? Not necessarily. Uh, you, you can you can use that in a in a uh, absolute uh, like. Uh, Let's say a very woodenly literal sense. You could try to say God was wrong when he thought this. Uh, but God himself throughout the Bible, he, he's, he's not as critical or uh, he doesn't use that level of meticulous language when he talks about things that he regrets. So God regrets two times in the Bible his own actions. So he says, I regret I made man. So when we're looking in Genesis 6, the scene playing out there is that God looks down. He sees the world, and the world has become wicked. And then not only God says it, but the narrator says it. It, it duplicates this thought within God's speech and the narrator's speech that God repented of making man. And so what's God repenting of? He's repenting of his own action. So God does sometimes have regrets. Uh, basically, he's saying, if I were to do it all over again, I would not have made man. There's a second repentance that people don't see within uh, Genesis uh, 6 as well, where God repents again and decides to save mankind through a man, Noah. The second time God repents his own actions is with King Saul. He says, I repent that I have made Saul king. There, there's a specific reversal. God says it. The narrator says it. God regrets his own actions. Is, is that something that classical theism would allow? Can God regret his own actions? That's something they have to struggle with because their theology is bumping up against what the Bible explicitly states multiple times in multiple ways. And not only that, but these, these, uh, these points are very integral to the narratives in which they're involved with. They, they explain changes in the narrative. They explain a thought process of characters. They're integral. So if we try to explain them away and claim, oh, they don't mean what they're actually saying, the narrative falls apart. The narrative hinges on God repenting of his own actions. Okay. So, uh, so God, re God regret, regretting, you know, his uh, making of man and also regretting Saul and regretting, you know, other instances. Um, is that, I mean, is that not him actually saying, I wish I didn't do this? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> If God so, could have done it all over again, he went to main man. He, the, man became so wicked. Uh, he, he says uh, all the all the all their thoughts are on evil continuously. He is astounded that this is this is the matter of course that this world has taken. If you read that story and you're reading it with earnesty, you are you're reading God's thought process, his lament, his internal struggles with this creation that he has created. There's not another way to read it. We can't read it like God's dispassioned here, that this is not affecting God on some core level. God is in a state of repentance. Okay, so do you think that God knows the future all the way up to when he resurrects humanity and he's in heaven with them? No, I don't think anything like that. I think God has plans for the future and God can put together things and make things play out. I think that, but I don't think God meticulously knows which blade of grass is going to be cut and where it's going to go after the lawnmower spits it out and where it's going to fly around. 
I don't think the Bible claims that God has that type of knowledge, that he's He's a he's a meticulous bookkeeper of all things, and uh, he calculates every single physics uh, uh, angle and momentum for all e future eternity. I don't think you get that. You get more of uh, God's watching things. God counts our hairs. And so counting, that's like a present action where God says, okay, Chris, I, I don't have too much hair, so you might say, he's got five hairs and you know that's accounting that's a present thing so he's keeping tabs on everything but we don't get a sense that he's trying to project meticulous calculations into the future okay so when he when we get to the book of revelation and, and john sees a new heaven and a new earth is john seeing reality no no it's not actually john is writing to churches that no longer exist right so uh he, he writes a letter to seven churches None of these churches exist anymore. This letter was meant to be to a people who would be alive during the lifetime or the near lifetime of John himself. And so this is this is an elapsed prophecy, just like every other apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible. Uh, these things are very uh, figurative. They're very speculative. And they have a lot of uh, weird imagery that's involved with them. And, and some of the details between the different apocalyptic texts, they don't quite correlate on a one-to-one -one basis. So it's, I would say it's more speculative than it is seeing a movie of the, th of the future. Speculative, like from whose perspective? From God's perspective or John's perspective? That's a good question. It could be from God's perspective. It could be from John's. It could be uh, an apocalypticist who is penning their expectations for God's uh, judgment of the world. You see apocalyptic texts throughout the Bible. People always focus on Revelation, but there's quite a few of them. There's, there's about uh, uh, half a dozen to a dozen of them. And all the details don't necessarily all line up. You're going to have to do some a uh, lot of somersaults to try to claim that every single one of these are going to come true in every detail, rather than a more reasonable view is generally this is the idea. God is going to come back. There's going to be some sort of apocalyptic of, uh, event. Jesus says that the angels are going to round up the wicked. They're going to put to death the wicked and the righteous will be blessed. And then people are going to live forever. And there's varying accounts. Do we live forever with God in the new kingdom as uh, Revelation states? Or or is it with a figurehead as other apocalyptic texts might uh, might uh, give us the idea? So so w what is it? Is there a sun? Is there not a sun? Is there, there a cloud? What's this new Jerusalem look like? Does it cover the whole earth? Is it just this one location? And so the, the details of all these texts are pretty interesting to bump up to each other to see where they connect and where they disconnect. Okay, so then, for example, where it says in Peter's that we have a sure word of prophecy, why do you think he used the word a sure word? Is that not because mean? Because it's going to happen, yeah. So, okay, because so then, so then if it's going to happen, that means... God sees it as it's certain, like it's going to happen, not like it may happen. No, because when I, I have plans to do them, I, I have the power to do those plans and I bring them about. And people, when I say I'm going to do something, uh, I'm not going to give a personal life example. It, it's, uh, but when I say I'm going to do something and then I do it and that people, they, they can be assured that I'm going to carry out my plans. And God, in the Bible, the interesting thing about 
about how God tries to convince us that he is powerful and he will perform the things that he says, uh, we, we turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 48. And God's argument is not what you're stating right here. He, he's not like, well, you know, I have this omniscience of the future. And so that I know all these plans will turn out exactly because I just uh, tap into these latent attributes that are inherent in myself. That's not his argument. Actually, if you look at how God argues to people in order to get those people to believe that God will do the things that God says he's going to do, he points to his past act. He points to his power and his character. He says, I'm the God who led you out of Egypt. I led you out of Egypt. I was powerful to do that. I told you guys I was going to put you into captivity under Babylon, and then I did it. You see these past acts. You see that I have come through. I've done what I said I was going to do. And that way, you know that I'm the true God. And all these false gods, these Baals that you're worshiping, they don't have my power. Though that's my evidence. That's how you can put your trust in me based on past performance. It, it's not... he. Isaiah is an open theist. He doesn't argue like a classical theist would. He doesn't argue like God controls everything and nothing's going to thwart anything. And there's going to be no surprises because the future's set. And he has this, he taps into this eternal knowledge. That's not the argument that's happening there. God is powerful and God will do what God says he's going to do. So, all right. So then when, when he says it is a sure word of prophecy, that means it's a sure plan. This is what God is planning to happen. Right. Okay. So then when God predicts somebody is going to do such and such a thing, is that not God controlling that person? God, I'm not going to say that God can't control people. I mean, I, I think we could generally control people. Let's say we built an army of nanobots to inhabit your body. I could control you to do things. I'm not going to say God can't control people to do things, but you're not going to find very many prophecies with that detail level where individual actions are from specific individuals are mandated, mandatory. It must happen. Instead, most prophecy you see are the vague type, that uh, this vague general thing happens and and the fulfillment of that itself uh, has a lot of latitude. Let's take, for example, God's unilateral promise to Abraham to make of Abraham a great nation and, and to bless him and to uh, elevate him to the status in the world. Uh, John the Baptist, he comes across these Pharisees, and these Pharisees think that they are saved by virtue of being Jews, right? The Jews get saved because they're part of Abraham's lineage. And John the Baptist says, who warned you from the wrath to come? God can raise up new children of Abraham from these rocks. What he's telling them is that they shouldn't be assured, they, they shouldn't have all their faith in, oh, we're saved because we're children of Abraham, because God is innovative. If God says he's going to do something, there's multiple ways to bring that about. Uh, he could kill all of Israel, just as he threatened to do in Exodus 32 to Moses. He said, uh, Moses, th this people's real evil. Uh, so how about this? I'm just going to kill them all. And since you're of Abraham's lineage, technically my promise to Abraham will be fulfilled if I make a new people through you because God is innovative. God can try new things. God can make his plans uh, materialize, actualize through innovative means. That's what John the Baptist is getting at. And that's what God was getting at in Exodus 32. Moses successfully argued to stick with his current set of people, not kill his people. And he did, did that through uh, appealing to God's sense of image. He said, if you kill all these people, God, 
all these foreign nations, they're not going to think you're a very good God. They're going to think you're a death cult. That, that wouldn't be a very good uh, PR campaign, public relations. And God said, oh, that's a good point. And the text says that God repented. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what about in instances, for example, he he prophesied or a prophet, uh, I think it was Micaiah or someone, he, he prophesied that Ahab would, would die in battle. And Ahab, he decided to, um, I guess, change his appearance. He didn't want to look like a king in the, in a battle, so he acted like he tried to look like a, a another a, a, another foot soldier. Somehow, some arrow out of nowhere struck him, and he died. You know, he bled to death, and so on. I think some dogs licked up his blood, as the prophecy said. So, was that not a case where God saw the future, despite the fact that someone tried to? avoid the future why would why would that be your assumption rather than uh, uh the solution that god guides the arrow well yeah that's that's true i, I guess that's okay, so, yeah we should actually talk about that situation because uh micaiah micaiah i think that's his name uh he said uh, that he he's the prophet of god and he's called before ahab and ahab says uh does yahweh give me blessings and victory and he's like yeah sure god does that uh go ahead and do your thing and he says oh tell me the truth and he says okay you want the truth you can't handle the truth but i'll give you the truth and he says god is in heaven uh this is what happened there was a scene in heaven god is surrounded by his counselors and he, 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 he crowdsources the angels and he says, how are we going to get this Ahab guy to get killed? Uh, who has any ideas? And then all the angels, they, they all stand up like one at a time giving ideas. And then finally one angel says, how about we, we lie to all his prophets? And God says, that's a good idea. Let's go do that. And so God sent out lying spirits to put uh, the prophecies in all these, these false prophets' mouths in order to entice, entice Ahab to go to battle. So this doesn't sound like a God who meticulously controls the future. It looks like a God who takes input and tries out ideas in order to get things to happen. And in this way, God is able to manipulate circumstances to get his goals, his divine uh, courtly intrigue to, to get those to play out the way he wants. So I think that God may, may have uh, guided the arrow. The, the even if Ahab would have died in, let's say Ahab just got killed by a foot soldier, that would fulfill the prophecy as well. Let's say he tripped and a horse ran over him. Uh, see, there, there's multiple ways that this prophecy can, in fact, be fulfilled. That's why when we're thinking about open theism, look at the level of detail that the prophecy demands and think about to what flexibility God has in actualizing those events. Maybe the arrow was random, and then God didn't have to find a different way to kill him. Maybe that's a case as well. But God wanted him dead. God could have probably just sucked him alive to hell like he did the sons of Korah. He could have struck him dead like Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. God could have done all these things, but he wanted him dead for some reason during this battle. I don't think that would have been a problem for God. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that God must rely on this... Uh, definitive foreknowledge of the future to force that to happen. Okay. Interesting answer. Good answer. So when it comes to, for example, the book of Revelation and God, he sees that um, in the end, there's going to be the mark of the beast. And this beast power is going to cause uh, the world to uh, take a mark and so on. And any, if anyone doesn't take the mark, they're going to get their heads um, you know, chopped off. Now, 
is this God like making this happen or is this God seeing this happen? Or is uh, that uh, loose prophecy of the future with a lot of uh, symbolism and imagery that might not necessarily play out exactly as that as states? There, we, when we're reading Revelation, there's there's a lot of lot of crazy imagery that we're seeing, and to try to take everything so woodenly literal may in fact be a mistake. That's why I'd point to the other apocalyptic texts throughout the Bible to show there is discontinu discontinuity between them. There, there's difference in detail. There's difference in, in what they're let's, saying. Let's slow down real quick. Let's slow down. Okay, so you, you called it loose. Is it supposed to be loose? If it's so loose, how do they know when it's happening? The prophecy. When the angels round up the wicked and, and put them to death, I think uh, we'll, we'll be very, very aware well, of when that's happening. That's the easy part. I'm talking about the right. part where you see the mark of the beast. They see all these things happening. How would they know the specific signs that this is happening as God stated? Instead of just like it being so. Well, does it broad. have to happen? Does does that specific detail in the book of Revelation, let's say that didn't come a past. Uh, let's say instead God, there's no millennium, let's say. And God just sends angels down from heaven to kill the wicked, round up the righteous, bless them, and create a kingdom of God. Would people look at that and say, oh, look, that's a failed prophecy? Would that happen? Well, yeah, because then you, we would just talk. We brought up Isaiah, how God, you he was stating that you know he's God but by the fact that what he states is going to happen is going to happen. So, you know, for him to say, well, hey you know I'm God and not like the other idols because my plans will fulfill. But yet later on, he shows that his plans do not fulfill. Then he's just unqualifying himself. All right. So if, if that's your level of uh, what you demand out of prophecy, you're going to have a big problem with the prophecy against Tyre. A Tyre would be trampled by Nebuchadnezzar. It'd be destroyed. It would never be rebuilt. I could pull up Tyre on a map for you today. Uh, do, you, do you have a problem with the prophecy of Tyre? Did, was that fulfilled or not fulfilled? The kingdom of Tyre. Yeah. And in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to destroy you. Uh, you. You will never be rebuilt. There's a kingdom of Tyre today. I can pull it up on a map. Well, I mean, all right. Did the are, we prophecy come are we talking about Isaiah 14? Uh, I, could, I could get the reference. Yeah, because I'm, th I'm thinking that that's talking about as far as the ancient Tyre, not, not as far as like people living there today. Like as far yeah. as the... The, yeah, system the prophecy that in Ezekiel just never, never came about. It, it wasn't fulfilled in the way. Okay, so uh, Ezekiel 26 is what I'm talking about, that there's this prophecy against here. It's going to be broke down. You'll scrape her dust and make her like a top of a rock. So it'll be a top of a rock. It'll, she'll be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken. It shall be a plunder for the nations. So he basically says that uh, he's going to bring the king of uh, Neb King Nebuchadnezzar against this. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to uh, sack it, take all its wealth. He's going to slay all their daughters. He's going to build a wall. He'll direct his battering ram. So his horses are going to run through the streets. The problem is this never happened. And uh, in Ezekiel, uh, it records that this never happened because in e Ezekiel records that Nebuchadnezzar's men attacked the city. They assaulted the city. But guess what happened? Um, all, the, all his men went bald. The seeds were so long and so tiresome to them. They all went bald. And then God gave... King Nebuchadnezzar, Egypt as a consolation prize. Mm, I would have to look into that more because um, I'm not sure how to look at that if, if that's not like a 
a conditional prophecy. Right. So but, that's what, what what happens when when in the Bible things don't materialize as the prophecy states. Uh, the people who are apologists for their worldview will just say, "Oh, that's conditional." So let's pretend in the future God comes back, angels round up the wicked, put the wicked to death, bless the righteous, uh, create a kingdom of God uh, for the righteous to live forever. We would say, well, the, the part over there about uh, a mark of a beast, that was the conditional prophecy. That, that would be their way of justifying that part not coming true. It, it's the catch-all uh, for their theology. But in the prophecy, you don't see any conditionals. You, you just see God stating something that's going to happen, and then there's no reason actually why it didn't happen. And the reason's not given. It's not like, oh, and there, it's, no, there's no implicit conditionals in that prophecy either. We could even look at the, the prophecy of Moab. When the Israel invades Moab and God says, I'm going to give you all of Moab. You're going to kill them. You're going to take all their cities. They get all the way to the capital city of Moab. And guess what happens? They're sieging the city. And the king of Moab, he takes his son, he sacrifices him, and he hangs his son's dead body on the wall. And then there's a great wrath that comes against Israel. And Israel is repulsed from the land of Moab. And the prophecy fails. So there, there's failed prophecy throughout the Bible. And so uh, if you are fine with those prophecies and want to justify details or call them conditional or something like that, you should, you should apply the same latitude to the book of Revelation if those details didn't pan out. I don't think your faith would be shaken. I think, I think, in fact, your faith would actually be, be uh, very much emboldened if God returned with an army of angels, put to death the wicked, and established a kingdom of the righteousness or of of the righteous to live with God forever. I think your faith would be emboldened. I don't think you'd say, "Well, this one thing didn't come true, God. How how do you explain that?" That's not going to happen. Well, I mean, it, but it's natural to ask that, considering the fact that. If God used that as a test for himself, like that's a good standard to use, then why actually use that standard when you break your own standard? Well, probably because we're reading things too literally. So a lot of times the Bible uses uh, very literally? hyperbolic language. Yes, hyperbolic language. Uh, you will be destroyed forever. Uh, all uh, Guess what? The Amalekites, they were all killed. But guess what? After the Amalekites were slaughtered to a man, they keep reoccurring in the Bible because often the Bible uses hyperbolic language. You're going to be destroyed forever. That just means, typically, it just means this, there's going to be a general destruction. It's not well, going to so be then, total therefore, necessary. So then if we just say that, then what we just read was just hyperbole. It wasn't like they had an absolute destruction. but It could be, but what, what, is, what is the thrust of the prophecy? The thrust of the prophecy is that they're going to be rid of their Moabite enemies, which didn't, didn't occur. The thrust of the prophecy with Tyr is that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to take Tyre. It didn't happen. So you look at the thrust, the themes, the motifs that are being expressed in the prophecy, and as long as those generally come true, the prophecy is said to be good. Just because little details don't materialize, that doesn't shake our faith in, in God or those prophecies. So, okay. So I'm confused by the term literal because you, you take it literal when God says that he has, when he's angry or he repents. Is that not literal? Right. Because uh, it plays into the story. It's a key plot point that gives meaning and uh, it, it explains character motivation and character actions in a narrative. So if the narrative is historical, then we need to be taking that seriously. It can't communicate nothing. 
Uh, figures of speech, idioms, they mean something. They don't mean nothing. So when uh, the Bible talks about the lowest, lowest parts of the earth, oh, my, 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 my form was uh, formed in the lowest parts of the earth in Psalms 139. That's an idiom. The idiom has meaning. The idiom means, well, in the womb, right? The lowest parts of the earth and the womb are sometimes used interchangeably. And he's just talking, he's using an idiom, a figure of speech. So when we are reading anything, any language, uh, English, we're reading German, French, when we're looking for idioms, figures of speech, how language is used and functions, we need to look at context and see what's going on in context. How does this language add to the context? How does this, how do we interpret the meaning? Do you know in the Old Testament, uh, in Job, it doesn't say curse God and die. Are you aware of this? Job's no. wife. Job's wife tells him it, it. I'm getting a little bit of feedback from you. Job's wife tells him, "Curse God and die." But in in the Hebrew, uh, it doesn't say "curse God and die." It says "bless God and die." And so the the idiom is that we don't want to associate God's name with curses. And so anytime the Bible actually says "curse God." They use a figure of speech. They use an idiom that says bless God because they don't want to associate God's name with curses. And so we have to be wary, uh, aware. We have to be aware of this type of use of language, how how it's uses, how it's used and how it functions. I get that part. So but you're, you're saying, OK, when it comes to his feelings, that's that should be taken literal when it comes to certain expression, like when God walks on earth is that should be should that be taken literal well you look at the the story context that it's in so if is genesis 3 is that uh, meant to be taken as a historical narrative that actually happened and so if if those features if god's repentance or god's walking is an integral part of the story and the story is meant to be a historical narrative we should probably take it seriously what it's saying we probably shouldn't uh, dismiss it out of hand. In the Genesis 3 narrative, when God's walking the garden, it talks about the cool of the day. So it almost seems to me that that's, that's being literal, that it's describing a leisurely walk by God. In, 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 in the ancient Near East, they had gardens. The gardens of the gods was a very popular theme, and the gods would frequent this garden. The gods would eat the, the divine fruits in this garden. And so in, in the garden, in our Genesis 3, we got a tree of life and we got a tree of knowledge, both divine foods that assumably divine creatures can partake of. And God's there in the garden experiencing this and walking around. It seems, okay. it seems like it's meant to be taken literally. Okay, so it should be taken literal. So here we find in Genesis, Genesis three or uh, one and two, all that's supposed to be taken literal because it's written in a historical, I guess, sense. It gives great right. detail so people can understand what they're talking about and who they're talking about and where they're where they're talking about. Not okay. not everyone takes Genesis one as literal, and I see well, their argument that they want to relevant. I'm talking to you, right? Well, well, what I'm saying is that. That doesn't mean they're wrong and I'm right. I just it see more evidence to see that that narrative in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is meant to be taken as history rather than allegory. Allegory is a thing. Uh, it could be that the book of Job is an allegory. I respect that opinion. Uh, there's The people throughout the Bible seem to take Job as a literal historical figure. And so I'm more sympathetic to that idea. Okay. Well... When it, when those people are in this, uh, I guess, hot seat, then I'll <laughs> I'll question them. But so 
let's let's just continue on with this idea of literal because I find that the word literal is being thrown around to dismiss whatever people don't. So like. if if Jesus says I am the door, <laughs> you don't take that literally. Oh, Jesus is a wooden piece of uh, you know like a a furniture fixture with a doorknob, and then you kind of open well, it, and then it's he, you can. You consider what is literal based on what's possible, I guess, for that context. So if, if Jesus says, I'm walking, then that's definitely possible and probable. But if he says, you know, I am the bird that's, you know, I'm um, looking at you uh, dance in the street. I mean, he's a human at the time. Then you'd say, OK, that's probably unplausible. He's speaking um, metaphorically. Um, but when we're talking about God here, I mean, his his powers is like mysterious. Like he could do more than we want to imagine or can so imagine. He can't walk then. <laughs> well, he could walk, so that's why yeah. I believe it's literal. So if he says things like, if he knows the future and he predicts the future based on what he knows, I could I could see that as a literal thing because. But he never claims to do that. He never claims to do that. He never he never claims to have all knowledge of the future. Okay, so then. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is that what not... What does that mean? So what's yeah. the context of that? Well, the context is actually revealing to John, the revelator. Um, well, yeah, even the idea. It's the context of him revealing the future, showing what's to happen, what's what's going to come to pass. Right. So, so for him to actually see it, that means it's there. Let, let's talk about that phrase. So you you see you come across this short phrase, I'm the Alpha and Omega. If I bring that to someone who's not familiar with the Bible and I say, hey, what does this mean? Let's say I, I walk to them and say, hey, I'm the Alpha and Omega. They'll look at me like I'm crazy. That's a reference actually to Isaiah where it says, I'm the first and the last. They might actually, a random interloker, someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible, if I come up to them and say, hey, I'm the first and the last, they might have some sort of conception of what I'm trying to communicate. It's not completely obvious. So it's not completely obvious that this means whatever you're trying to claim from it. If you look at the context of Revelation and Isaiah, it's all in the context of power acts. God does what God says. God created the world. God will end the world. God starts things and end things. One thing that people don't understand is... Uh, uh, in that context, there is a phrase where God says that I am he who is, who was, and he, he who will be. But there's a parallel statement about the beast. The beast is not, but he was, and he will be. So what does that mean when the beast it was not, or was, but is not, but will be? What does that mean? Well, it means that this person or this figure he was a, an ancient person, and right now he's not in power, so he is not, and then he will be. He will come into power eventually. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. These are power claims, and so they're, they're about your, your realm of power at any one point, perhaps, that uh, this being was, he was in power, is not in power, but will be, will come to power. And in the same way, God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, same context as uh I am he who is, who was, and who will be. Uh, that's the, they're one verse right after each other. That's the same context. These are power claims. They're not knowledge claims. They're not claims about timelessness. These are claims that God is powerful. He will do what he says he's going to do, and he will come with power. Revelation is all about power. God commands armies. God commands these angels. There is uh, devastation unleashed on the earth, and killing all God's enemies, righting the wrongs, establishing a kingdom. This is a very powerful book.
Well, okay, but see, being the alpha and the omega or the beginning and the end would be part of his power. So being at the end of time while he's also at the beginning of time is part of his power. Well, yeah, so th that's a claim about what uh, alpha and omega means. But I think contextually, it's more about God ends what he starts. God is the first. God is the last. No for God. No one's going to stop him from doing his things. The Back to the Isaiah reference, if you switch back a couple chapters before the I am the first and the last, God talks about telling people in the beginning what's going to happen before it comes to pass. And what he means by beginning is not the beginning of all time. He means the beginning of when he's starting to do those things because he's telling people. He tells people in the beginning, they're there and he starts doing an act. He tells them in the beginning what it's going to be. And then when it comes to pass, they know he is the one who did it. So it's, I think it's a big mistake to take these uh, loose, <clears throat> these loose words, I'm the alpha and omega, and then to impose some sort of metaphysics that's not, not obvious in the text. It's not explained in the text. It's just something that you kind of wish that's what it meant, but it, the text itself never explains that that's what it means. Okay, but this idea of it being loose, is that not loose to say? What do you mean? Well, I mean, because it may be highly, very specific. And I mean, when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, you know, and also we have other references of, you know, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. God is being the beginning of time or history or whatever. Um, like, that is very specific about time. So, and then also the book of Revelation is about what's going to happen in time. So I, I find that really hard to say that it's loose. You yeah, know? so the, the phrase alpha and omega, make up stuff. There, there, there's no immediate context that explains definitively what that means. And so if you want to prove text for your view, uh, it's not a really good idea to grab a vague phrase that doesn't have a definitive defined meaning and then impose a meaning that's not obvious from the text. You have to consider alternatives. And so if I come to this same verse as you and I say, this is about power, and uh, you say, oh, this is about time, well, it's it's not a very good uh, text if the text itself doesn't differentiate what specifically it's about. That's why that's why when we look at these narratives that I use for my proof text, the fact that these these points, the narrative hinges on these points being accurate and historical, those give those proof texts a lot more weight because you destroy the narrative if you take out God repenting in Genesis 6. And the narrative doesn't make sense. There's there's no motivating action. There's there's no uh, impetus to change. There's there's nothing spurring the, the action that we are reading. We don't understand the characters without these elements. So when we're proof texting, we want to proof text something with better context that explains our proof text such that it can't be, uh, someone can't come to that same proof text with a different reading. Because how do you differentiate which is the true reading? The only way to do it is context. Okay, so like, let's say we go to Revelation. Let me share my screen real quick. Um, Revelation. Oh, my computer's lagging. Oh my goodness. I gotta put on my fan. All right, so here we find in Revelation one, Revelation chapter one verse uh, two, it says, speaking about Jesus, who who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus and of all things that 
he saw. So did not Jesus see all these things? And he is he not revealing the future or the things that's about to come to pass in time? Yeah, he's given a vision. There's a lot of people throughout the Bible that are given all sorts of fantastical visions. These things happen. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's like a literal movie that you're watching of the future. I think that what's uh, funny is in Revelation 1, these things must shortly come to pass. Have have these things come to pass yet? Yes, I believe they come to pass. So you're you're like a preterist? Pre no, I, I'm a historicist. I believe that these things happen throughout history stretching from his time all the way to the end. So all these things happen shortly per verse one. Well, most of these things that are happening and then there are, some are still yet to come or yet to fulfill. And so Revelation 1, 1 is saying some of these things will shortly come to pass and some will take 2000 years. Well, yeah, the beginning of these prophecies will, will shortly come to pass. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think that's the best reading. But uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to read through the Gospels. It's interesting to read through uh, Paul, even James and Peter, and to see their expectations of the end times. They were expecting a kingdom of God within their own lifetime. It never happened. A revelation. So they were wrong. Well, it, it, we're, I'm not living with God right now. Well, you're not living. But of course, they, their expectation was wrong. But Christ's testimony, he, I don't think he was wrong because he saw it. Uh, Jesus said that things were going to come uh, by about shortly. We have quotes by Jesus all through the Gospels where he says uh, th these things aren't going to these these things are going to happen before you guys get through the cities of Israel. He made very time limited predictions about the apocalypse, uh, predictions that did not come about. Oh, they did come about. It just they didn't come out in the way that you interpreted. It, it should have come about. Okay, so you're saying that the prophecy is so loose to. Uh, allow almost any interpretation, right? No. Well, no, there's, there's, okay, there's method to Christ's madness, or at least the way he interprets the scripture and replies um, prophecy. So, for example, Matthew 24, where he talks about, you know, how the end of the world was going to be, he was, um, I guess, what people would call a double application or, or um, a recapitulation, re recapitulating prophecy, where it happens in one sense where it was happening in the macro micro sense to Jerusalem. And then also it will happen in a macro sense at the end of days to the whole world. Um, so yeah, they, they compare the destruction of Jerusalem uh, thinking that that was the end of the world, but Jesus answered both of their questions. Well, two questions as though it was one answer, but really that one answer represented, I guess, both the beginning or the ending of their, their city and also represented the ending of the world. Um, but so what I'm trying to get at is that like if Jesus, it says that who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus, like Jesus had to witness something. And in order for this to be a vision, I mean, someone had to create the vision at, yeah. at, to some degree. So this vision is inspired by a reality, a future that, God saw. So that's a claim. Uh, yeah, uh, that's definitely a claim. I, I, okay. I believe that I could create a computer program of uh, visionary stuff just showing you what the apocalypse is like. So I wouldn't say God couldn't do that. You, you are making this weird claim that God has to have a movie picture perfect of everything that will happen in the future rather than 
just showing people imagery of what God's own plans are for the apocalypse. That's a weird claim to make. What's so weird about it? Because I just told you, I could make a computer game that shows an apocalypse plan uh, myself. It, it's, it's not hard to do. God can show us images of his plans. That's, but, okay. but the we, thing is, you don't need a direct access to future, uh, future uh, truths that are, are defined and cannot change and, and everything must happen, God's unfalsifiable knowledge. You don't need that to give someone an image, imagery that's very imaginative of the future. Yeah, So, but the, the key word is testimony or I saw this. When someone witnessed something, that means they were there, they saw it. So if I created, a, I guess, a, a, a video game where some kind of um, – movie that was supposed to be an allegory of something that something had to be something i saw in order for me to make the allegory out of so i mean this this vision of the future is based on something that christ saw because why use the term testimony or you know something that he saw like he saw all things right no so testimony is just talking to someone and so Revelation 1-2, who bears record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus? So Jesus talked to him about something, and he's telling us what Jesus talked to him about. And of all things that he saw. And, yeah, that's, okay, so what, what, you're, what you want is uh, these three things to be the same thing, which is not oh. necessarily the case. So he, he's giving record of what God said to him, what Jesus said to him, and of the things he saw. Okay. So Jesus did Jesus see the vision himself or Jesus? Jesus could have, but we don't get it from this verse. So what did he see? What did who see? I guess Jesus. Jesus? We're not told in this verse what he saw. The, the, all the things he saw is probably referring to John, John the Baptist. Okay. Okay, so he who it could, it could be Jesus, it might be, and so Jesus might tell him about things that Jesus saw. I'm not sure if that that's warranted. From I think it's probably I really John think this God. is talking about what things that John saw. Yeah, that's actually because it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Okay, so this is something that God seen and God because it's a revealing and. Then it says to, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Right. Okay. And he sent it and testified, signified it by his angel unto John. So we, let's, let's just pretend for a minute that God has exact knowledge, propositional knowledge, unfalsifiable of all these things, that these things must happen. That doesn't mean open theism is false. If God can think, and, and we, we get God talking, we get God interacting with people throughout this, God is sitting on a throne in heaven in this uh, very passage. And uh, people think that, oh, God can't have location, and God can't uh, uh, think new thoughts or interact with us in any way. Open theism is true if God has discursive thoughts, and we see this throughout Revelation. So let's pretend God wants to make this one event unfalsifiable, that doesn't mean all things are unfalsifiable. That doesn't mean all future events are non-falsifiable. That's just telling you, that's just giving you one data point. Okay. Okay. 
overall, I don't I don't see Revelation as contradicting open theism. I see very very much open theist elements throughout Revelation. I I did a whole podcast on the Book of Revelation and open theistic elements in it. I see. Yeah, I mean, I accept I accept all the openness of God, um, but I also believe that he is also closed in a sense that he also has like pretty much exhaustive knowledge about the future. Um, but I think we, you're, you're very um, familiar with my belief that God is timeless and temporal at the same time. Um, but I'm not at the, I'm not in the hot seat right now. There's, there's this verse in revelation. I want you to explain revelation chapter 17. Um, Oh yeah, here we go. So 17 verse um, eight. And it says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend unto, shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder those, those wait, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet this is the verse we're talking about earlier hey i need to go upstairs well, yeah but this is this is the part i want to focus on right here let me just kind of zoom in right here where it says whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world so why were they not written in the book of life from the beginning of the world unless god knew that they would not be saved because the book of uh, life is only the names of uh, people who worship God. And so uh, this phrase from the foundation of the world, we see this used elsewhere. I think it's in Luke where it talks about the blood of all the saints, which have been slain from the foundation of the world. The prepositional phrase is it's a very, very bad idea to base your theology and your doctrine off of uh, specific meanings of prepositional phrases. And from the book of the, from the foundation of the world, it should better be translated since the foundation of the world. So you take all the saints who have been killed from the foundation of the world. That's what it's talking about. From, from when creation happened up until now, all the people who died, that, that's, that's, that's the sum total of everyone whose blood has been uh, shed since the foundation of the world. What this is talking about, it's not telling us that there's been names in the book of uh, the life that have been eternal names. It's not telling us that Joe Schmo, his name has been written from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world. Again, it, it's oppo, or it's not oppo, it's not before the foundation of the world, it's since the foundation of the world. And so this book of life is continually edited. And the book of Revelation ends with saying that if you change the book here, your name's going to be struck in from the book of life. Uh, you, you see that elsewhere in Revelation, names can be blotted out of the book of life. It, it's a book that people's names are added and then they're removed. And the people whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world are people whose names have never been added to the book of life. And okay, so, so we, then their names were never added to the book of life in the beginning. So they no, just no, 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 we don't. It's, it's since the foundation of the world. And so all the names in the book, the book was blank at the foundation of the world. And then names have been added since the foundation of the world. Justin Wilson, he gets born, he becomes a Christian, his name's added. So his name has been added since the foundation of the world. Okay. So wait, wait, you, you lost me there again. So just say that last part. So it, 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 
the pre the prepositional phrase is since the foundation of the world. And so that means that, that it's covering the time period of from creation until now. And so your name is not, Justin Wilson's name is not in there from the foundation of the world. It's not there from before the foundation of the world. It's been added since the foundation of the world. And this The same prepositional phrase is used about saints, saints who have been slaughtered, killed since the foundation of the world. And the meaning of it in that other location is not that these saints have been eternally killed in the eternal mind. No, it's basically saying that everyone from the, the, the world being created until now, these are the people I'm talking about, the people who have died for the faith. It's basically saying anyone whose names have ever been added to the book of life, that's who I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. So then the, in the last days where these people are following the mark, I mean, excuse me, following the beast, it says that their names were not written from or since the beginning of the world. Your names okay. have never been added to the book of life. Never added. Okay. So do you believe that when a child is born, that they are born lost? Uh, I don't think so. I, I I think this book of life is more about Christian followers. I don't, I don't think it... Uh, necessarily extends to the people who've never heard about God. That doesn't necessarily mean that the people who've never heard about God and children are not going to be given some sort of chance in some sort of sense. Even within the book of Revelation, when the new kingdom is established, you still have outsiders. You still have people who are not part of the righteous, not part of the God-fearers, and they are bringing gifts. This is the ancient Israelite idea that Israel would be elevated to a priest nation, and then there would be a subservient world around them bringing gifts. And so later in the book of Revelation, it talks about no one unholy can enter this city. There's people who are unholy and they're bringing gifts to Jerusalem and the ones who are who are not righteous are not allowed in the city. So I don't think this book of life is the be all end all of people who are quote unquote saved or people who aren't going to be purged during the apocalypse. I don't think that's the idea of this book, but this is the book of people who generally worship God. Okay, so this book of life is not recording children who are destined for life. Probably not. There, there's probably a different divine book about that. I think in Isaiah, they talk about a book with this one was born here. So there's a there's a divine book that records places of birth. Why wouldn't that not be in the book of life? Because there's different divine books and they serve different purposes. No, and you can have you can you could be talking about the same book just in a different way. Could be. But we don't got any evidence of that. And we, we don't have evidence of what you just said. Oh, yeah, we, we find a very new book that's written in Malachi 3, a book that never before existed, and it's a book of the righteous. So in the end of Malachi 3, what happens is uh, they're, they're expecting the apocalypse, right? God's going to come back. He's going to kill the wicked. And the righteous, they're, they're, they're more open theistic than you would say normal Christians are. And so they think that uh, perhaps, maybe God's going to come back. He's not going to understand that we were always faithful and righteous to you. And uh, so then God's just going to accidentally kill them. And so to alleviate their fears, God has to write a brand new book, a book of the righteous, such that these people can be assured that during the time of apocalypse, when God is judging the wicked, they are not going to be accidentally judged. And so we find a new book being written in heaven to alleviate fears that people might be accidentally punished. Where, where do you get the idea of it being new? Okay, if you, you read if you Malachi have, 3. Okay, Malachi 3. Yeah, let's, let's turn to the end there. Okay. This is fantastic. I love this stuff. And so uh, we'll use, uh, I think you like the King James, right? So we could use some King James. 
Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord, uh, Malachi 3.16. Okay. And the Lord hearkened. So the Lord is listening to them and he hears it because God gains information from outside himself. Open theism is true. Malachi 3.16 tells us uh, open theism is true. And, and God heard what they were saying to one another. And a book of remembrance was written before him that they that feared the Lord and thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, said the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son and serves them. And so they're complaining that uh, the wicked are going to maybe get away with uh, their wickedness, and the righteous are going to accidentally be punished, and the Lord hears them. And, and as a response, this book is written. A book of remembrance was written before him, for them that fears the Lord. This is a new book being spawned in real time, being written in real time in front of our eyes. We, we see how this book operates and functions. It's, it's a new book and we see it being written. It's not an eternal book. It's not timeless in nature. It's written for a specific purpose to alleviate fears of the righteous. I see what you're saying. So it's a book that was written, not things that were written in the book. Okay. So when it comes to the book of life, though, so these I guess children that are born, they're not born written in life or life eternal. They're just born outside of some other realm. Yeah, it seems to be they- that in Revelation that this book is subtitled The Book of Life of the Lamb Slain. And so uh, this book seems to have the purpose of anyone who worships, Je- worships Jesus as a savior rather than just a general book of life. As Moses talks about uh, the people being struck out of the book of life, that seems to be a more general book about everyone who's living, and then once you die, then your name's taken out of it. So that seems to be a very different book that Moses is talking about. That even wicked people, uh, I think in the Psalms, King David talks about God striking the wicked out of the book of life. They're in there because they're alive and not dead. So different books, different purposes, and the book of the life of the Lamb slain, that seems to be a book of followers of Jesus. Well, okay, but are not children considered automatic, I guess, in a sense, saved? Because the Bible says that, you know, uh, when Jesus, you know, brought a child on his lap, he says, this is the kingdom of God. He tells us to be like little children. So... Maybe saved, but maybe not in the book of life of the lamb slain. They might be in a different book and they might be given a different method of salvation. Well, did not Jesus die for the children? Yeah. So then why would they not be part of the the book of the lamb if if, if they're covered by the lamb? Because if the book is a book of people who worship Jesus and, and let's say some child in Africa has never heard of Jesus, there's no reason to suppose that he'd be in a book uh, recording the this list of names of the people who worship Jesus. That's a that's a pretty big extrapolation, and it seems well, to be I think you're adding the term by, worship. You what? I think you're adding the the concept of worship. That's well, like, it's the book of life of the Lamb slain, and so how does the name get added, and how does the name get struck out of that book? Th- those are all open questions. I don't see how uh, this book's existence would go either way for or against open theism. Well, I guess if it's real-time modification. Huh. Okay. I mean, I I guess the way I'm seeing it is that like automatically each person is born um, you know, in the book of life. And when they sin, that's when they are 
I guess they're they're erased or they get to a point. I, I don't think gone. people are erased at, with sin in the book of Life of the Lamb Slain. I, I don't think like one sin's going to get you taken well, out of there. It, no, either way, if you live a life of sin and you don't listen to God, you reject God to a point where God can analyze it and say, okay, this guy is not my child um, or they they walked away from me in any sense, then God can erase that person from the book of life. Right. And then if you modify the book of Revelation, then your name is also struck. And so names do get removed which is a very open theistic idea that this is a real-time running log that is modified as events happen. A very open theistic book. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I guess I see it in, in, in both ways, though. I see that God is he's open as well. He is uh, closed at the same time. Like he, he has determination. Um, just like how, you know, there's like a, a way that Jesus, he knows things, and yet he's God. Um, you know, in some sense, he he knows what he doesn't know. But OK, interesting, interesting. So that's how you see this verse. So then when when you look at, um, I guess, other texts. So, for example, when Jesus says he doesn't know when his father, like when he's coming. Yeah, now, yeah. Um, does he know now? Uh, he could. He doesn't have to. One thing that's interesting about modern theology is everyone's looking for these God maker traits. Like what are the attributes that makes God, God, what, what, what does God claim in the Bible, which makes God, God, God talks about his incomparability, the extent of his power. He doesn't, he doesn't go into these philosophical Greek attributes. Oh, I must know all propositions from time eternal and this must be ungenerated and uh, inherent in my nature and and not have discursive thoughts I, we, jewish ideas and thought doesn't hinge around these god making attributes instead they see god as a person and god is given characteristics he has a personality god has a personality and he reacts and he interacts with people in particular ways at particular times and God's God, by virtue of him being the most powerful being, uh, him being unrivaled, him creating the earth, these, these, are, these are their conception of what makes God, God. And so when people want to come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus didn't have omniscience, and omniscience is a God-making attribute, so if God didn't have omniscience, he wouldn't be God. And so Jesus must have yeah. some sort of latent omniscience that was set aside. That's, that's these are not biblical concerns. God doesn't care if he doesn't know something. All right, but does the father know? Uh, God probably has plans, yeah. Okay, so God the father knew something that Jesus the son didn't know. In the Bible, yes. Okay, is that, that, that not God sense. knowing something that God doesn't know? Is that not God knowing that something that God doesn't know? Yeah, considering that they're one. They're, they're, they're God. They're the same God. Well, they're, they're different people. And so they have different personalities. They have different wills. Jesus says to God, not my will, but yours be done. They had a conflict of wills. They had different wills. And so they're different people with different personalities. They have uh, different conflicting goals. Sometimes Jesus doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be tortured. So I get that part. But the point is, is there's still one God. Right. So are, are you a Trinitarian? Yes. Oh, okay. So, I mean, but they're, they're still one God. They're, I guess they're... Okay, so the classical God omniscience that God cannot gain new information. So if Jesus at any point in Jesus's existence learned 
when that day and hour would be, open theism is true. Well, you know, I'm not that kind of like classical, I guess, theist. Right. So then you're an open theist with me. Well, no, I, I would say yeah. no, no. By, I mean, by my starting definition, if you're rejecting God's knowledge as eternal, unfalsifiable, ungenerated, non-discursive, if you're rejecting those things, you're an open theist. No. Well, see, that's the thing. I, I have a partial belief in that in the sense that a partial a, works. I'll, I'll well, accept partial. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, God has an, an umbrella of knowledge where his his mind extends you know, outside of time. And in that sense, ultimately speaking, he knows, you know, past, present and future as though it's like now. But, but can he gain new propositional knowledge? Yes. Under under that umbrella of his own reality where he is and, pretty much everywhere. And but yet, so the God time, essence, he, he actually cuts his brain off. He cuts his God, he cuts his mind off from the rest of himself. The God essence can grow in knowledge. You're an open theist. <laughs> well, yeah, I've said, well, no, not at ultimate, like. I'm not ex exhaustively an open theist in the sense that God is right. exhaustively like unknowledgeable about the future. But so, yeah. so the traditional uh, Trinitarian thought uh, wants to consider Jesus his own hypostasis. So Jesus is not God. So I was blocked by James White. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with James White. Yeah. I was blocked by him on Twitter because I asked, was the human part of Jesus God? And uh, no Calvinist will answer this. I've gotten maybe two Calvinists out of like 50. I've asked like 50 Calvinists this and only two have ever answered. And the answer is no, that the Jesus, the, the human part of Jesus is not God. They want to claim 100% of Jesus is God, 100% is man. But the 100% that's man is not, has no overlap with the 100% that's God because man can't be God in their theology because in their mindset, it's a very, it's a classical mindset. God can't have change. Change means degradation. Change means decay. God can't have parts. God can't have relationships. Therefore, the human part of Jesus cannot be God. This is classical hypostatic union, union theology. And so for the, it's the human part of Jesus in their theology that learns. It's the human part of Jesus that grows old. It's the human part of Jesus that dies. It's not the God part. God can't God part. die. No, oh, I believe okay. in God part. Yeah, I believe you're not believe a classical Trinitarian. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're not a classical Trinitarian. Uh, That's a statement, not a question. Okay, whatever they, whatever. I mean, as long as what I think is biblical, it's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly, one hundred percent. I'm with you. I'm not criticizing you. Yeah. But that, that's just a fact. Um, you're not a classical Trinitarian, and classical uh, Trinitarians would reject God. Uh oh. In any respect. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I have issue with those people who don't believe the text as it states. So when it says that God actually he learned something in a sense or he, he says, you know, um, he tests Abraham. And he tells him, look, you know, I want you to sacrifice your son. And when he, Abraham was about to do it, he says, now I know, you know, yeah. you will um, serve me with all fear and so on. I take that literal because I know that God has the power to learn. Um, but also right. I believe in, that in, in classical theism that you can't. Yeah. So I, I believe that there's a paradox within God where he knows what he, he knows what he doesn't know. So in the air, in the, in the, the reality where he doesn't, uh, or let me just put it this, this way. Re, he has two or three or five, whatever amount of states of minds that he has, um, in, in certain states of mind, he can actually limit himself of what he already knows. Uh, so just like how, we have in our, I guess, our memory, we have pretty much the history of 
everything since the time we were born. Um, but yet we suppress that knowledge. And if I ask you, like if I was, if you would ask me like, Justin, do you know, you know, what happened on the fifth day of your birth? I don't know. I, I don't remember, <laughs> but I do know because it's, it, the knowledge is somewhere in my head. Um, but that, that's how I see God. Um, he, he sees all history, past, present, and future. He knows it, but at any portion of himself, I guess the, the point where he's driving the narrative, he could suppress that knowledge and live as though he doesn't know and, and actually sincerely say he doesn't know something, just like, I don't know what happened to me on the fifth day of my, my uh, birth. So, yeah, but... Right, so change the title of this show to Justin Wilson Comes Out as Open Theist. <laughs> you're, trying to, you're trying to heretize me, huh? You're trying to give me... Yeah, you just change the title, and, and then we're good to go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, uh, you know, I see a lot of, a lot of um, Avenus. Um, now, you're not Avenus, just make that clear. Um, or at least not yet. But... A lot of Adventists, like myself, we actually take the text literally when it says that God does something, like he rests on the Sabbath or, okay, there's some debate there. Or like things such as um, he walked, he talked to Abraham, all these little things that sound physical, that actually sounds like he is um, doing something, like he's changing his mind. We take that literally. But my issue is when people get really convenient with it. And so when it comes to like, for example, God getting angry, God laughing, those things that's hard for people to imagine because they think it's too human, then they say, okay, no, 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 that's not literal. But when it comes to other things such as God loves us, God is smiling, God is happy. Oh, that's very literal. Uh, so I think that's, that's an issue. But yeah, I think we can make God mad. I I wouldn't want to. I don't. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> it might not be a good idea. Huh? Okay. So this is this is going to be more hypothetical. So when Jesus comes, right, and we're we're talking to God, um, do you think that God could ever say, "I don't know"? Yeah. Ask him a question. Yeah. If, uh, you say. Uh, what what will I be doing one thousand years into the future at this very moment? He might say, "I don't know." It's, that's that's a stupid question. He might just say, "That's a stupid question. Go away." Uh, if, but uh, he could. There, there's there's things that God says that never things that uh, I wouldn't say never entered his mind, but uh, things that he's surprised about. I never thought you would do this, Israel. Okay, so I think a lot of people are asking now in their heads is like. How could you trust that you're going to be saved if he could just change his mind and say, you know what? I thought I was going to save these guys, but I decided I don't like them enough. So uh, I think my kids trust me every time we go to the pool. Uh, they, they trust me to save them and protect them and guide them in the water and save them if they're drowning or have some sort of water accident. And they trust me not because uh, I'm immutable or, or uh, I, I must have exhaustive knowledge of the future. They trust me because they know my character. And that's why I like to point out in Isaiah 40 through 48, that's what God appeals to. God appeals to his character. You know, I will do what I say I'm going to do because 
my character has been consistent in the past. You know who I am as an individual, and in that way, you can trust me. It's not this uh, psychotic stuff that, oh, if God could change one iota, that means we can't be assured forevermore of our salvation. You can't trust anything. I had a pastor. I was getting kicked out of a church once, and he's like, uh, uh, he basically said that we can't trust God unless we know God can't change. And it's like, do you trust your wife? Do you trust your, I don't, you're not married, of course. Uh, do, do you trust, uh, do you have a good relationship with your dad? Do you trust your dad? It's, it's, it's crazy to think that the only way we could trust that someone's going to do what they say they're going to do is because they have no choice to do otherwise. That's an insane definition of trust. You're not even dealing with a human being. You're not doing dealing with a person. You're not dealing with a person at that point. God is impersonal. God is just a force of nature. In Calvinism and classical theology, God is an input-output robot. He's not a person. He doesn't interact. He doesn't have feelings. He doesn't have considerations. He, you just put some inputs into him, and he must react. But that's not how God is in the Bible. God has various uh, tool set that he can use. He could uh, respond to the same situation differently depending on who he's dealing with. He could look at circumstances and decide. He could try new things. With Israel, he tried uh, all sorts of new things. Isaiah 5, he says, what more could I have done to you to make you believe in me? But you didn't. I expected I expected good grapes. You turned out to be wild grapes. So now, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kill you all. That happens throughout the Bible where Israel just keeps rejecting God and God finally in frustration all the time says, I'm just going to kill y'all. And then something else happens. Maybe God starts punishing them and maybe people start praying and they return to God. It's like, okay, I know I, know I said I wouldn't repent and, and save you, uh, but I, I'm going to do it again. Like in Judges where he says, no more. I'm, I'm sick of saving you. I'm not going to do it anymore. And as soon as they cry out to him, he changes his mind in response to prayer. God can do things. Hmm. Okay. I can see that. See that my issue with, with, uh, see, I feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because everything you're saying, I don't disagree because I'm in a dualistic, I guess, theology. So I, I in other words, I accept that God is omniscient in the classical sense, um, except not in the sense where he's a robot, like how you're describing it. Um, but then also I accept the fact that he is really open in a good portion of his mind. Uh, so yeah, everything you're saying, I totally agree with in like the person of Jesus and the person even of God, the father, where he could literally act like he doesn't know because he has that power. Um, he has the power of suppression, but, hmm, but when you, so, my issue is just the ultimate, like when you, you say ultimately God doesn't know and he could literally, so like, like when you consider all the planets that God created, the meticulous, I guess, meticulous order and like the, the balance of nature. I mean, it is extremely fine tuned. You would think that he would have the ability to calculate the future, um, you know, all the way to the end of time if he wanted. Because, I mean, look at all the things he created with intention. Unless there's randomness in there somewhere. Okay. If randomness is an element of the universe, then things are uncalculable. True. True, true, true. So so my problem is that theology, you, you don't find very much of a biblical basis for it. A lot of the proof texts that you find for this classical idea of omniscience, God knowing all future events, are very stretched proof texts. Did, did you ever hear my Matt Slick story when I, I talked to Matt Slick in person? Uh, are, you, are you familiar with that? 
No. Like you mean physically in person? Yeah, physically in person. So okay. uh, he was at the, I was at the Will Duffy, Matt Slick debate. It was an in-person thing. And after the show, I'm talking to Matt Slick and Matt Slick's like, yeah, God has omniscience of all future events. Come look at this verse. This is uh, 1 John 3.20. Uh, God's greater than our hearts and knows all things. And I says, I, I say to him, I say, First uh, John two twenty, a man knows all things because First uh, First John two twenty says that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit and we know all things. And he goes crazy. He's like, what What are you talking about? He runs to his computer, and he just starts typing around. And I said, it's the same phrase. It's the same word for all. He runs to his computer and he's just sitting there pounding the keys and he's he probably got his Greek software pulled up. He's like, it's not in this version. It's not in this version. He had like this uh, physical panic attack when I pointed out that the exact same phrase that he's using for exhaustive knowledge of all future events is yeah. applied to man just one chapter earlier in the same verse, in, the, in, in verse 20. And so, uh, of course, he takes nothing to heart. Uh, you, you deal with Matt Slick, and it's a, it's a blank slate each time. He doesn't want to acknowledge any arguments ever exist. And the next day is pretty funny because there is a part two of the debate next day. And he's like, this, if, if anyone wants to learn anything about Greek and and First uh, John uh, 3.20, talk to me after the show. It's like, you're just a, you just went home. You went home after after our discussion, and you, you, you now think you're a Greek expert because you tried to figure out a solution to your... A uh, blatant, blatant internal inconsistency. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I see that. Well, see how how I would answer that is, um, like, if you brought that to me, which I think the idea is brought to me, uh, I would just say, well, when things are stated of God, they're they represent a, a more God's fear, or right, like, which is special pleading. That's the definition well, of special pleading. Well, yeah, of course, it's special pleading. So, because so, God is special. Well, that's it's a logical fallacy, though, right? No, not it's not a logical fallacy when it's that logical to assume special, the person is special. Okay, so special pleading. If we look it up, if we type in special pleading, it'll say it's a logical fallacy, right? Well, it's no, it's as long as it's logical. So, for example, if I say this person, man, Justin was flying the other day. Well, okay, he was running fast. You apply that to him, and you 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 know to to reduce the meaning of that to the human because humans don't have wings. But if I say, yo, I saw God and he was flying, then you accept, okay, well, because God has the ability to fly and he's pretty much, I mean, omnipresent to, to some degree, then you can see that literally as him flying because he has God powers. So, you know, you, you, you rate it based on the power, the, at least the meaning. So you, you, that's, that's okay. So, yeah, you you could do that. You could use known character attributes to, to try to extrapolate a meaning, but it can't be your proof text. If you have to try to extrapolate meaning uh, based on your preconceived notions, it's not a good proof text. You have to turn to a different proof text. And this is the funny thing is they often, when I'm dealing with people, they turn there first. That is their proof text. They don't, they don't have other proof texts. Uh, that is their proof text. And their proof text just doesn't say what they want to say. Special pleading the reason why special pleading is a fallacy is because it doesn't get you anywhere. To claim something has its own unique standard that applies to nothing else is to give us no tangible information. How how we're supposed to actually get those ideas from those statements? We're, we're, we're left with nothing. And we can't, if someone's special pleading, how does that mean you're right and I'm wrong? If we're having a debate, and uh, let's say, for example, I say that God does, God controls everything. Let's say I'm a Calvinist. And uh, you say, no, he doesn't do that because uh, look at these times where 
where God is uh, condemning people for their acts. And then I just turn to Isaiah and I say, look at this. It says, God's ways are higher than ours. That means I'm right and you're wrong. And then all your questions, we just need to ignore. That's just, that's just like special pleading. There's nothing inherent in your explanation that means what I'm saying is wrong and what you're saying is right. So again, when we look at proof text, we look at evidence for our beliefs, we need to turn to something with context, something in which the context clearly delineates the views that we believe are true, that we're trying to defend. If there's a proof text, and it could be taken either way, if there's a proof text that's using the fr same phrase about God that is used about man, and you're taking them totally different, chances are that that verse isn't an inherent proof text for your view. Uh, you have to come to that proof text with your view in mind in order to get that meaning from it. Okay. I see what you're saying. It makes sense. Huh? Yeah. But at least that's how I would explain it. Um, but yeah, I guess that is in some sense uh, not helpful considering it's not a proof text. It won't prove my point, but what I just said would at least explain the reason why one would be different than the other. Huh? Okay. Right. So, so when when you boil down to it, they they don't have proof texts. You turn to each one of their proof texts. And it's like, oh, God knows all the future, and then they'll turn to the Psalms and they'll say, see, it says God watches the world. Well, watching the world is acquiring knowledge. Watching the world is is gaining from outside of yourself. This is the opposite of classical omniscience, and it's not even about the future. It's about present knowledge. So, using proof texts like that actually actually countered their ideas of knowledge of all future events. God watches the world. God gains knowledge from the events that are happening. Hebrews is the same way. God has his eyes on the ways of the world, and we're all going to be judged. These are present knowledge claims about God acquiring information. Hmm. Truish. Truish. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, um, you know, that's all I have. There's, there's, you know, I think you pretty much I dealt with many of my objections. Every other objection in my head is more philosophical and it's not, I guess, biblical um, per se. So, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and uh, just being straightforward and thorough yeah. as much as you can. But, yeah, man. So, hey, guys, thank you for joining us. Maybe I should open it up just for some questions. I'm not sure. I have yeah, just open it up. Hey guys, if you're still here and you have some questions for him, um, for either me or, or or Chris Fish Fisher, um, yeah, put it on the put it on the side chat where we can see it right now. But I think a lot of people are just going back and forth with each other, <laughs> starting some internal fights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see how people keep up with that when the things is just going up so fast. But um, hmm. So let me, let me ask you this while they're, they're thinking about questions. When did you realize you were open theist? Well, I kind of grew up in an open theistic household. My dad was a Calvinist for a long time. Then he moved to Denver, and he got a very good Greek teacher, Bob Hill. And Bob Hill was an open theist. He's, he's a Greek teacher. He knows the Greek. And he finally convinced my dad of the truth of it. So I was born and grew up in basically an open theistic household. And uh, that doesn't mean that I held all the same tenets that I do now. I remember very early in my life when, uh, uh, when I was probably about sixth grade and I asked my dad, dad, what's, what, what's the biblical evidence that God is omnipresent has is physically located everywhere on earth. And so he brought me down to his bookshelf. He pulled out this big systematic theology. He handed me uh, this section where it's turned to omnipresence. And I looked at the evidence. I'm like, this is not very good evidence. Very, 
very sparse evidence. And so uh, my theology did develop. I was, I did kind of grow up in this, in this world that we all grow up in where people think, oh, all these classical attributes about God are true and they must be true. But the biblical evidence uh, convinced me that uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wishful thinking that we bring to the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Wait, I'm not sure if these, there's these questions asked directed towards you. How many gods are there? I don't think that's a question towards you. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of gods in the, in the Psalms 82, uh, God is standing in the midst of the gods and he, he takes back authority to himself. The, the gods in, in throughout the Bible are considered real. They're just lesser gods. Uh, Paul writes that what people sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, uh, not to, and, and demons are like these divine creatures. So uh, that's one thing. These these foreign peoples throughout the Bible, they, they didn't necessarily worship, worship nothingness. They might have worshiped real gods. When God punishes Egypt in the Exodus, it says that he punished the gods of, of, of Egypt as well. God is punishing these divine beings who are the protectors of these different people groups. They exist. They're real. But God is the ultimate God. Divine beings? I, I would consider them fallen angels. Or, or, yeah, fallen angels. Are you saying these divine beings actual, are actual like people besides demons or besides Satan's fallen angels with him? Yeah, so God had, uh, he had uh, distributed the peoples uh, in the world to various deities to guide over. And so Psalms 82 is known as the Ascension Psalm, where Yahweh takes back power from the other gods. He says, all you guys have been ruling corruptly. I'm taking it all back. I'm bringing it all back. And uh, you guys are going to go die like men. And so in Psalms 82, God reclaims the power that he had delegated previously. I think it's in Deuteronomy when he splits up the nation according to the sons of God. Really? I interpreted that totally different. I took that as him talking to human judges. Then, who, then you have to explain, just like a human princes, you will die. Uh, it, it's a contrast of some, it's, it's a comparison of two different things, and they can't be the same thing. He's not saying, well, he you said will that die like Tyre. you are. Well, he said that to the king of Tyre because the king of Tyre saw himself as someone who is, uh, I guess, not a typical mortal for some reason, mm -hmm. right? Right. So there, there's there's some elements in Psalms. Michael Heiser has a lot of work on it that might be interesting to look at. But there's other elements in there that suggest divine creatures. Okay. So we need, oh, this is a whole nother theology to me. I mean, another world of theology. So these aren't like the fallen angels. These are like good beings who turn bad too, that, that had nothing to do with the fall of. of yeah. Of it, it appears that God delegated authority to various divine creatures over portions of the world and different people groups. And then they ruled corruptly. So he had to retake, retake that authority. So they didn't fall because of Lucifer. They just fell because they didn't take care of the poor. They got corrupt. Um, those possibly. Uh, Michael Heiser has an interesting claim that we, we're not even sure that the fall of Satan happened until the New Testament. Well, what? No. How, okay, where do we where do we even get the fall? I mean, it may not be explained as clearly until the New Testament, but it didn't mean it didn't happen. Um, just like how there's so many things that's in the New Testament that the Old Testament didn't state clearly, um, but it, it happened. 
Okay, that's interesting. Right. Ah, I would love to just pry into that. All right, so there, let me get more into the subject, though. Uh, Gideon asks, how did Jesus know he was going to be martyred? How did the Old Testament know? How did the Old Testament know that uh, that Jesus would be martyred? That Jesus was going to die, be crucified. Well, where in the Old Testament uh, states that? Well, for example, I would say Psalm 16, verse 11, where, um, yeah, I mean, David talks about saying that you will not leave your Holy One, you know, in, I guess, in the grave. Yeah, he's talking about himself, though. I don't see anything about Jesus there. Well, no, actually, Peter says that that, that's, that was talking about Jesus because. Does uh, he? Yeah. So, for example, hold on, let me get to uh, Acts chapter 2. Um, because he clearly says that this was not talking about um, David because David is still dead. Uh, yeah, let me show it real quick. Share my screen. Oh, that's the wrong screen. Yeah, boom. So, yeah, here in... Wrong screen. Yeah, here... Yeah, so it says in uh, Acts 2, verse uh, 27, he says, Because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made me known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with continence. Uh, and then verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you the, of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn unto, sworn with an oath to him that of, of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection, resurrection that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So... So he's just t saying that this is him seeing the resurrection. So not necessarily about Jesus's death, right? Well, he would have to die for him to be resurrected, right? Why? Why? Well, because. Yeah. Well, because, okay. Well, because. Didn't Lazarus this, rise? Well, because not from this text, but the fact that it says you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. In other words, his body is not going to be dead long enough to get all, I guess, corrupted. And I, I would suppose old people <laughs> technically are corrupted bodies. I, uh, I think I think David's calling himself as the Holy One. I, th I think that's what's happening there. But then why would he say, David, but men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the David, I'm patriarch David. He's both dead and buried which would mean that his Holy One did see corruption if this was talking about David. Not if the resurrection happened. Well, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, 231. So uh, he, he seems to take this as a, a, a knowledge about a future resurrection rather than um, necessarily Jesus dying for everyone's sins and, and being resurrected. It seems to be more of a general resurrection claim. So you're not going to actually find very strong predictions of Jesus's death. You might turn to Isaiah 53. You might turn to 
uh, David talking about uh, being nailed to to wood. Uh, none of them are super clear what's going to happen. And so, in what way was the cross a fated event? I think the plan was since since of long before uh, long before Jesus, long before uh, Jesus's ministry on earth, the plan was to have some sort of atoning sacrifice as we see pre-scienced in the Old Testament sacrifices. And so Jesus, all Jesus had to do to die for everyone's sins was to be executed or killed like Isaac would have been, like uh, those other sacrifices within the Old Testament in some sort of way. It could have been by a high priest. It didn't have to be by the Romans. We don't get anything that has to be on a cross. It could have been a normal sacrifice. It seems like a general atonement was the plan, and it could have been fulfilled in multiple ways. So, so how did Jesus know that he would be crucified? What were he basing that information on? Uh, probably communication with God. Communication with God. Yeah. So, or yeah. So why did he why did he quote scripture to like like prove it? Oh, so where are we talking about? Okay, so for example. There's one text where he talked about how um, the shepherd would be, uh, I guess, smitten and the, the sheep would run away. And he was predicting that his 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 disciples would run away once Jesus would start being, um, I guess, smitten or attacked by the, the guards and crucified. Right. What One topic I think is incredibly interesting is New Testament usage of Old Testament passages. And it's it's I think it's Michael Michael Hoffman, the guy who wrote God didn't say that, and him and Bart Ehrman and I found a handful of other scholars all saying the same things that the New Testament writers thought in cyclical patterns. Like Michael Heiser will say this too, in which uh, Jews thought that history repeats itself in cycles, and so when they're pointing to Old Testament events, so Matthew says, so that this must be fulfilled, I call my son out of Egypt. Well, what's happening there? It's 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 about something completely different when you turn to the Old Testament context. What they're seeing is patterns repeating. And so when Matthew uses that phrase, so that it may be fulfilled, he's not talking about the Old Testament passage being an actual prophecy. He's just saying this, you know that this current event is true because it parallels this Old Testament concept. We're seeing history repeat in cycles. And that was their thought process rather than Rather than our thought process in the modern world where a prophecy is just like a vision of the future, your Nostradamus and seeing things exactly as they're going to happen. Instead, time is cyclical. Patterns repeat. You know the truth of current events from past events. Just look how Paul uses, uses Old Testament and changes. Paul changes the subject. When he's using Hosea, he changes the subject from Israel. He changes it to Gentiles. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So w what do you say to this verse, like where Jesus, he, he is walking on the, I guess the, he's walking on the road and he meets these guys who just doesn't understand like what just happened. They, they thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but they, they were disappointed. And then Jesus, after his resurrection, talks to them. And then he says, um, verse 20, in Luke 24, verse 25, it says, then he said unto them, O fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter in his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them 
in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus, he saw yeah. the resurrection. He saw his suffering, everything, him going into glory, starting from the book of Moses well, all the way his, to. What's to, his mindset? So I think you could look at Isaiah 53 and you could see what's happening there where there's this, uh, there's this lamb to the slaughter who, who is hated by his own people and, and uh, punished and, and, uh, uh, you, you can see these things in the Bible and then your, your fulfillment, you know, what does Jesus do when he wants to be numbered among the criminals? He, he, he purposely goes out and fulfills it. He goes and has his people by swords. And so he's like taking active steps to parallel old Testament concepts. I think that's Jesus's mindset here that it's fitting that these things happen because look at these old Testament parallels, a history works in cycles rather than in this linear path that we're familiar so with. So this sounds ad hoc to me that Jesus, he these these statements that's that that God says are going to happen. So God, he so Jesus, he makes it happen instead of it just happening. Sometimes sometimes Jesus makes it happen. Sometimes it happens on its own. Sometimes it happens through other means. Did there have to be a Judas? Is there is there anything in the Old Testament that demands a Judas? Uh, you'd be very hard pressed if Judas never happened. If he wasn't a figure in the New Testament, you're not going to find any Old Testament prophecy being falsified. Well, you would. I mean, because Which one? well, if I mean, you you find the ones. I guess if you were to look at it from the pattern that Jesus was interpreting the text. So, for example, the way he saw, um, I don't know, that he saw like the the life of David uh, representing the, I guess, the life of his son in a sense. Um, yeah, the seed. David had betrayers, so the yeah. Christ would definitely have to have a betrayer, because. But you, but you wouldn't have an atheist. You wouldn't have like a Pine Ridge turning the Old Testament and saying, "See, this is a failed prophecy because there is no Judas that existed." So in a world where Judas doesn't exist, you don't have an atheist claiming there's a failed prophecy in the Bible, right? Well, no, I mean not in that sense, not in that, no specifics, but maybe. So for example, where it talks about how. Um, the Messiah, he will, he should like die and resurrect and these things should come to pass. Um, like why would Jesus point to it as though they should have understood this? Because they're, that's their mindset. That, that's how they read the Bible. Wait, is this look, how we should read the Bible? Yes. Yes. But we don't read the Bible like that is the problem. Well, when we come to Matthew, we say, oh, so that it must be fulfilled. And then we say, oh, that was a prophecy that that God eternally foreknew all the details of. But we turn back to those Old Testament verses and they have nothing to do with the prophecy. There's there's no way to identify them as a prophecy. And we're we're left confused and the atheists are confused and the atheists criticize the Christians. And George yeah. Smith in his book, The Case Against God, points out that all these prophecies in the Old Testament are not real prophecies. The problem is that we're reading it wrong. He's reading it wrong. We're not in the Old Testament mindset that history is cyclical. We know the truth value of current events by past patterns repeating themselves. You're looking for patterns. You're not looking for one-to-one -one correlations. Wait, so Jesus, you, did, you, did I hear you right? Jesus was reading it wrong. No. So no, we're reading it wrong and the atheists are reading it wrong. They're not in the Hebrew mindset. Okay, so then, so then when when the prophets wrote the text in the way they wrote it, 
they already understood they understood that people will interpret this as a prophecy because uh, some maybe some maybe not well i mean okay god and did god inspire them to write this maybe not as a prophecy maybe these are the data points that repeat themselves in history because history is cyclical okay so but they they should have picked this up like any person who is inspired Living. by god at the time of God or living at the time of Jesus. So Jesus was able to go to people and to turn to things like Isaiah 53. I don't know if you've ever talked to a Jew about Well, let's forget Isaiah Isaiah. That, that part is easy. Um, but easy. beginning at Moses. So he had prophecies about this, I guess, the Messiah, what's going to happen to the Messiah from the time that I guess the, the first books of Moses, which probably be Genesis or the book of Job. Right. If if you read Isaiah fifty three, it's not all that obvious that that's even talking about Jesus. In context, the servant is Israel and is talking about current events. So even Isaiah fifty three is a sketchy prophecy to be using as a prophecy of Jesus. And modern day Jews will argue that that has nothing to do with Jesus. But the well, Jews at the time of Jesus didn't think like that. They were looking for patterns repeating. They're looking for concepts in the Bible materializing in their real life. And that was their thought pattern. And for us to take a modernist approach and to come to the Bible and then interpret it through modern eyes, that's a category mistake we are making by reading the Bible in that way. Huh. I would like to, maybe I'd like to get you on hermeneutics some other time. Cause that's maybe you can't separate hermeneutics from this subject. Cause that's, that's what it all it's, it all boils down to that's how you arrive to this conclusion. Um, because to me, it just sounds like circular reasoning that the Hebrews in their way of thinking, you said that they would not interpret it Isaiah to point to Jesus. But then at the same time, say, you're suggesting that in the time of Jesus, the Hebrew way of thinking would have them look at Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 53 as Jesus. No, it's a, it's a data point that, that creates a pattern it's a, it's a, what Michael Hoffman, Mike, the author of God didn't say that he would call a proof text. It's something that doesn't necessarily correlate on a one-to-one -one basis, but the general truth of the subject establishes the truth of another subject. Well, the, but the point is, is that Jesus used this as proof, right? That's because he was in that mindset. So, so Jesus mindset was what Hebrew or, or what? Yeah, all the Semites at that time, Jesus is able to prove these things to these people because they're all of that mindset. And so what happens... But the thing is, the Hebrews did not, like the people in Jesus' time, the Hebrews rejected Jesus because they didn't see it the way he saw it. So to say that he had, the Jews had a certain Not, not the Ethiopian. Well, no, he was more open, of course. But well, right, well, it, the, the people that were accurate. convinced... Or we're convinced by this this line of reasoning, and if you read, if you read how Jews treated the Bible, look how Philo of Alexandria treated the Bible. Um, it's atrocious, uh, but uh, you you see a lot of examples of them hyper spiritualizing uh, Old Testament text. You find them uh, very concerned with patterns. You don't find them very concerned with uh, textual detail and analysis. It, it's it's an entirely different mindset. So what I'm saying is it's a category mistake for us to come in with this Greek mindset that we're looking for a prophecy. God says this city will be destroyed, and then the city is either destroyed or not. Instead, there might be a passage about a general destruction of some evildoer. And then if it happens now, 
Um, so that's uh, that's that's repeating some sort of pattern that happened before. Even though the original text might be about a different city in a different context, the, the truth value of now is established by past precedent. It's a different mindset. And it's not a wrong mindset. They're, they're not wrong to do it. It's just different than ours. And so we, we all become confused. You go through Matthew, and anytime you use the word fulfilled so that it may be fulfilled, turn to that Old Testament passage, and you'll you'll say to yourself, you'll say, what the heck is he, how did he get this from one thing from the other? We'll be confused because we're not in that mindset. Hmm. Okay. Let me, I, I heard everything you said. I, I just want to get to these other questions because they, these are some well thought out questions. Um, okay. For Justin and Chris, he says, if Jesus never performed a miracle, would you still have faith or is his faith not enough? I, yeah, yeah, I would not, um, I wouldn't believe in Jesus if he didn't perform any miracles. Maybe, uh, that's, that's an interesting question. So it is my faith in Yahweh wouldn't be changed. Um, my faith in Yahweh is established and firmly rooted in Old Testament. Uh, maybe, maybe I convert to Judaism if Jesus doesn't prove to be an actual reliable character. Maybe that's a possibility, but I don't think Jesus's miracles are necessarily his establishing feature. Hmm. Yeah, I believe it is because like the Old Testament, we have the prophets doing miracles and uh, miracles is a way to, to for God to show that one, he's powerful and that also he has um, I guess a story behind how he heals and saves us and Jesus would have to I guess as the ultimate prophet or as the ultimate spokesperson for God he would have to um, do some miracles so it, 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 it makes sense that you would expect like something from a God man it, it, it it's interesting that in the Gospels Jesus's miracles seem to be like a side ministry and he almost begrudgingly does them. That's not his goal. That's not his message he's trying to bring. It's just something he does sometimes out of, uh, he's a little taken aback by this request for miracles. Huh. Sophie asked, what do you guys describe as a miracle? Uh, probably something that seems to happen without some sort of natural identifiable cause that can be explained by normal physics or normal biological workings mm. something yeah. probably that takes an outside agency like if someone's arm grew back or if someone's lame from birth and now they can walk that very much could be a miracle yeah uh, for me it's just something that cannot be explained by natural processes or things that seem to be intentional um so, I mean, it, it could be natural, but it's highly unlikely. That's what I see as a miracle. But that's a good question. It's a tough question because, um, you know, it could be, I guess, it, it could be relative sometimes. All right, Chris and Justin. Uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is here and now. How do you interpret this? So Jesus has a famous saying about a mustard seed. The mustard seed starts the smallest of all seeds, he says. Um, it starts off really small, and then it grows exponentially. It becomes the largest of all trees. So in Jesus's mindset, 
there's the kingdom that's here and there's the kingdom that's not yet. And even Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman's not a Christian. He's, he's a New Testament scholar. He talks about this being a feature of Jesus's theology that Jesus believed in the present kingdom and the coming kingdom. The present kingdom was, was a small seed, a small spark. And the eventual kingdom would be God's return to earth and establishment of a physical kingdom. And it would blossom into this big, big structural thing. So there's, there's already elements of the kingdom. Paul says that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that we're, we're right now, uh, you know, where our hope is to one day get into heaven. He's saying that we are literal citizens currently of heaven. We're heaven on earth in the present. We are part of the kingdom on earth. So it's a small kingdom, and it was meant to expand into this glorious future kingdom. Yeah, I don't differ too much from what um, Chris said. I, I would say a kingdom simply is wherever the king rules. So the king, if he owns your heart, if he, if you are his subject, you are his citizen of his kingdom um, or his government, then yeah, you're you're a part of his kingdom. So if you're on Earth or in Pluto then the kingdom of God is on earth and in Pluto. Uh, so it's here and now, as long as uh, there's people um, are obeying him on this earth. So yeah, I, I would I would agree also with what Chris said there. Let's see if there's any other questions here. She says, thanks for answering. You're welcome, Sophie. Uh, she says, I've never heard a religion debate before. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, that, that's raised Orthodox Christian my whole life. So this is fun to ask questions, explore different sides. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And that's, I mean, that, that's strange to me because since I'm so used to hearing debates all the time. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, like, and, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. I was responding to atheist once. He's like, you Christians never attack each other. I'm like, what are you talking about? Christians hate each other. The only people that uh, uh, Christians hate more than atheists is other Christians. And they're oh, yeah. always attacking each other. And just, so, imagine, just imagine if we had like a, a Calvinist, like James White in here. Yeah, is the idea that Christians all get along with each other is, is a ludicrous idea. It says people who don't understand the Christian scene. Uh, so there's there's constant debates in my life. So you've been shielded probably from the worst of it, which is probably for the better. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. But there's, I got to admit, there's not too many uh, cordial discussions, or at least the ones I haven't been paying attention to. But here's, a, here's another question by uh, Sleepy Pete 55 Justin and Chris, do you subscribe to the many mansions doctrine? All believers in Christ will be in heaven. I guess Catholic, Protestant, etc. Uh, hmm. I, 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 assuming what I, I think what he's saying is that I guess there's many mansions or different, I guess, doctrines or excuse me, different denominations in heaven. Um, that all believers, as long as you're in Christ, you'll be in heaven. If that's what he's saying, then yes, I believe that. As long as the, the key component to being saved is having a relationship with, with uh, Christ. And these doctrinal differences, if it doesn't change your relationship with Christ and like cause you to disrespect God or Jesus, then no, I don't see why it would cause you to be lost. The only reason why we argue, to me, at least my reason, the reason why we argue out theology and then also try to save people from false theology 
is because that theology could potentially destroy your relationship with Christ. Uh, that's that's it. And then also may confuse people. So if you believe that God, um, I don't know, hates hate, hate left handed people <laughs> for some reason. Um, who doesn't? He doesn't. Well, praise God. I know. I said, who doesn't? Dude, I'm left handed. I'm joking. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no one of people don't like President Obama. But anyway, um, yeah, like if, if that idea doesn't bother your relationship with Christ, it doesn't change how you talk to him and so on, then you're going to be going to heaven and then Christ is going to correct your false theology. Um, that, but it may cause you to like not love God because you, you may be left-handed and you're saying like, God, you don't love me? Dang. So I might as well not you know serve you. So that's why we try to argue with each other because our theology could po potentially you know, lead us away from Christ. So uh, two data points that I, I like to always point out to in this discussion is God seems to be very reasonable and justice oriented. So when God's going to destroy all of Nineveh and then they repent and serve him, uh, Jonah, of course, is really mad about this and he hates it. And God, he responds. He's like, these people don't know their left from the right hand. They're, they're just ignorant. Um, should I not have compassion on them and all their animals? You, you just rather have me kill these people? I'm not convinced that th these people in Nineveh aren't God fears. We won't see these Ninevites in heaven, even though the Assyrians were one of the most wicked people on earth. They seem to have built a relationship with God in a short period of time. Another data point that I would uh, caution us to look at is the Job data point, where Job has these friends. There's 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 three main friends. Then there's Elihu, and at the end of the text, something interesting happens. God hates these guys because they are speaking all sorts of uh, blasphemies against God. God did this to you, Job. You have a secret sin, and God's punishing you. And God wants to kill these guys. They wa He wants to kill them because they're defaming his name. And he has Job pray for him. He says, Job, if you want these guys to live, go ahead and pray for them. And then Job, because he's a nice guy, apparently uh, he saved his friends' lives and prayed for them. And so we both have to understand that God is compassionate. He takes circumstances into accounts. People are judged based on their culpability, how much how much knowledge they had. Someone's in deep, dark Africa, never heard, hears about God. Um, God's going to give them a different standard than someone who who's like James White, who talks about God every day, reads the Bible every day. And guess what? James White is talking about like Job's friends. So I my 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 money's not on James White in heaven, but my money is on most Catholics that I've met. Most Catholics being in heaven, they care about God. They love God. the Catholics I've met are in the Midwest. So I don't know. I I went to a Catholic sermon in Washington D.C. once, and I don't know if any of those people are saved. But most of the Catholics I've met in my life are probably saved. Huh? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so you're not counting on James White to be there. Um, I'm not counting on that. I just, my dang. money is not. I, I if if I was God and uh, someone had said all those things about me, the level of knowledge that the guy possesses, the number of people that he influences, the the amount of how he, uh, the amount of information he should have to know better, it's, it's not adding up in his favor. So. Yeah. My, I'm not going to discount it out of hand and say, oh, James White is hellbound. But I'm a betting man. I bet money on things. And I would bet against it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I could hear you there. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't condemn him completely, but hey. 
this is a personal question. Uh, does Justin follow Tommy Sotomayor? Uh, I do. I do. I've subscribed to him. I've, I've listened to many of his his uh, podcasts, and um, you know, I I I vibe with him a lot. You know, um, it's just that he's more intense than I am. Far more intense. He's yeah. He's he's more vulgar, and yeah. Sometimes his ratchet news is a bit too much for me. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he's cool. He's cool. Um, he says some things that I just wouldn't say, but I've said some things that a lot of people wouldn't say too. So <laughs> it is what it is. So, okay. Someone says something interesting here. He says, if you guys were a tag team in the WWF, you could pin Hulk Hogan as well as the ultimate warrior together. <laughs> Maybe Hulk Hogan's a big guy. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could see us tag teaming against like Calvinist. Um, but when there's no Calvinists together there, I, I don't know. I think we're probably going to end up, you know, beating each other up. I know I will win though. Anyway, <laughs> you didn't catch that. Um, I think we get to tag team Andre the giant because he's dead. So it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> okay. Well, that's yeah. Why we have to, why you have to play us like that? Like <laughs> we have to fight a dead person like we, that week. Okay, here's here's another question towards us. Thank you for your answers. What is, in your understanding, blasphemy against the, against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin? Um, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, to me, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you grieve the Holy Spirit in a way where you can't even, like your, your heart is so dead that the Holy Spirit can't reach you um, or you're not letting the Holy Spirit reach you. Um, your conscience has just went away. So you don't even feel bad for what you're doing. Um, you, in that way, God can't even speak to you. And at that point, it's unforgivable because he just, you won't allow him to forgive you. So in that sense, and it's a little hard to explain because like some people are so deceived that even when they apologize, they're not really apologizing. So Satan could like be crying and saying, please, God, forgive me, forgive me. But really, he's not like it's kind of I don't know if you ever met like a psychopath, uh, a person who could literally cry, but not really mean it. They believe their story, but they're they're not really meaning it. They, they will like drop it a hat. They want to kill you um, at that point. Like their heart is like demented. It's broken. It's like you can't even fix it. So. That's that's to me the 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 blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the the verse is very cryptic, um, and so I would be hesitant to take much out of it. This is uh, coming from Matthew twelve thirty one. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That's the ESV. Uh, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This It's cryptic what they consider blasphemy. Is this uh, speaking ill of God? Is this uh, defying God's name to his face, shaking your fist at heaven? It probably could be something like that. Um, but it, it says other blasphemies will be forgiven. It's it's, it's cryptic. I, I would be very hesitant to take a firm stance. Yeah. And in that context, they were calling what Jesus is doing like evil, Satan. So 
when Jesus was healing people by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was convicting their hearts, saying that this man is the Christ, they were calling that spirit, the Holy Spirit, Satan. So it didn't matter what the Holy Spirit did to them. They were, they kept saying, no, that's Satan. So it, it was they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they were making it impossible for God, for Christ to like convince them of anything, because any convincing argument would be called Satan. So. I, I think that in that sense, they were making, they were putting God in a, between a rock and a hard place, make, just giving him a lose-lose situation there. Huh. And then you, I think this is in regards to what you just read. He says, what is the age to come? I think this is after the establishment of the kingdom. I, I think the periods in history are divided up and there's uh, probably creation to the fall, the fall to tell, uh, the, the apocalypse and the apocalypse after that, then we have the new heaven and new earth. It seems to be all the apocalyptic hopes are invested in this new world being created after the apocalyptic event, which are the angels coming. Jesus always talks about the angels or the reapers. They're going to come. They're going to round up the wicked, kill the wicked, and the righteous will reign forever with God. And so that seems to be the age to come. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, after when Jesus comes back and he resurrects the, the wicked and the, the righteous and so on, that's a new age, new world, new order. So, yeah, um, it's not like there is no point. There's no like universalism with that verse at that point where everyone is going to be saved eventually. Uh, no, that's just not it. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, David, I think you... I think you missed our answer to this question where you asked, uh, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here and now. How do you interpret this? I think it was. They're, they're citizens of the kingdom. They were there and now. But it wasn't the full glory of the kingdom. It wasn't God establishing his kingdom on earth and living with man forever. Like Revelation 21 states, God is going to live with man. He's going to live with us. It's not happening now. That's that's the future kingdom. There's a now kingdom, and then there's a future kingdom. Hmm. Uh, Dub says, I will donate to a cash app or PayPal, but give me till after the first month. No joking. Okay, praise God, man. Thanks. Uh, let me see. Muslims and Christian religion, which one will overpower the other? I would say Christian. <laughs> I wouldn't bet the farm on it. Muslims tend to be very much more convinced of their religion than Christians are, and they seem to be like uh, you insult. No, uh, you, you, there's an interview with Sarah Silverman. She's a comedian, and she's asked, "Why don't you make fun of Muslims like you make fun of Christians?" And she says, "They'll they'll kill you." Uh, the, the Muslims take their religion very seriously, and Christians tend to be very effeminate in it so we we might be losing ground to islam for a time being as they they proselytize people want to be involved with something uh, something that's serious you see calvinists proselytizing in the same way we are the serious theologians we we stand up against these wrongs it's it's us against them and so they they carry over all the dogmatic people i think islam grows in that way as well in the west and i i don't know uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Islam is going to be dominating until until the return of Jesus, when the wicked are rounded up and killed. Yeah. Well, I, I, I my view of prophecy uh, has me believing that yeah, Christians are going to dominate the world as we are now. Like they, 
Well, before we, the apocalypse. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, we Christians are, are going to dominate before the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Then how does um, the tribulation happen? Okay, so we haven't talked about that. So that's going to take a that's a whole nother. Okay, camp. okay, we could we could skip that. We could skip <laughs> yeah. that. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, Christians are going to dominate, just like how we dominated Rome. Um, at first, we were persecuted, but eventually, we turned the tables on on them, and we had political power. Um, so, okay, who is this guy? I don't know who this guy. You may know him. Can you guys talk about William Hasker? So William Hasker is a philosophically based open theist, and he believes in open theism because he thinks the philosophy demands a God that is open and relational and can change. Uh, he I believes I believe in dynamic omniscience that God knows all possible routes that anything can take, but sees things actualized as they come about. I think uh, his his theology mirrors that of uh, who's that other famous guy? Ah, uh, it's slipping my name. Uh, slipping slipping my mind. I had I, I went to actually William Hasker one of his talks. I went to the randomness conference, in which William Hasker talked about open theism, but he mostly talked about evolution. So he is a philosophical open theist. He doesn't take the Bible too literally. I think. Uh, marginalizing it modern modern uh, higher criticism for the bible is his thing and he, he he believes open theism on philosophical grounds hmm. interesting uh, i'd like to answer reply to this comment this is our our meditation works for me if i want to feel heaven in the here and now uh you know i would say the term heaven for a lot of people is just very relative. You know, heaven just means whatever feels good um, or just makes you feel at peace. So that may be true. Um, but meditation, just to um, give the definition of it, like in the Bible, meditation is really like imagining or seeing, just conjuring up, you know, I guess whatever that's, that's going on. And God, he actually wants us to have a, a, an acceptable meditation as uh, the Psalms of David says, you know, may this meditation be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our God and, and uh, savior or redeemer. So Christians are supposed to meditate, but it's not the same way as like yoga meditating where you just like try to erase your brain and just erase all thinking. And that's not the meditation of the Bible. The meditation is actually thinking <laughs> and actually for me, I like to imagine myself with Christ, exploring other worlds. Um, I like to, I like to imagine Christ actually in the corner of my house, just uh, chilling, or you know, right by my desk or something, uh, because he he is there. Um, that's thinking, you know, that's actually seeing and like kind of hearing it and so on. So, Pe people guys, like to, <laughs> people like to spiritualize heaven. They think heaven's like this. Ah, uh, there's harps everywhere or something like that. But in the Bible, when people go to heaven, they walk around, they do things, there's scrolls being opened, people are eating, they're interacting with others. Heaven's not that different than the earth in the biblical picture. In fact, uh, Christian, our final Christian hope is on earth. In Revelation 20, 21, it talks about how the new Jerusalem comes to earth and then we live forever with God on earth. The Christian hope, is not in dying and going to heaven. It's dying or getting resurrected or even surviving until the apocalypse in which then we can reign with God on a new earth. 
so uh like nt right uh heaven is a place on earth right yeah i mean someone said you know heaven is wherever jesus is so that's that's it i mean but for me heaven is the, the whole universe once i get to have the ability to <laughs> travel to different planets to me that's heaven that's that's fun all right so i think we should start closing it i need to i need to just have question and answers a little bit earlier uh because yeah it's, yeah it's build up a buffer or something yeah yeah or just like do it every 15 minutes so that people could stay engaged um but yeah guys sorry for if we didn't get to your question i know uh you guys your, your thoughts are just bubbling right now but thank you guys for joining um probably we'll have another discussion with uh chris chris fisher on another subject probably hermeneutics my favorite subject um but yeah if you guys like to donate to my um my channel my paypal link will be at the bottom and my subscribe star that that will uh be there soon and uh yeah thank you guys i'll see you guys in another hot seat god bless and have a good day